out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Welcome. Good afternoon. Or evening. Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Once again, playing the finest in indie pop. I've been delving in the, de- um, in the archives for some of my classic interviews. And this is one with Wendy May from the Boot Hill Foot Tappers that I did a few months ago. And this is the interview. I hope you enjoy it. And this is, um, after lots of waffling, the next part. Well, not the next part. This is when I asked her a little bit about the narrative and background of the band. And this was Wendy's reply. Wendy? Tell us more. Now, the Boot Hill Foot Tappers, we were a busking, we were a bunch of mates that met up and busked. Um, and uh, Camden Market was our main busking area. And um, from that, we got uh, offered a gig at the Dublin Castle in Camden, uh, supporting Roddy Radiation and the Tearjerkers. That's Roddy um, Byers from the specials, the guitarist in the specials, and he formed this band called the Tearjerkers. And we were supporting them, and we were only a four-piece then. It was literally a bashed-up old acoustic guitar, a fantastic banjo player, uh, Meryl and I on vocals and sort of Zobstick and tambourine and things like that. Um, and we stole Slim, who was the accordion player in Roddy's band. We stole him that night, so he joined us. And we were just a sort of ragtaggle of busking um, retrobates, really, you know, just getting drunk on Saturday and Sunday afternoons in Camden Market. So it was very, very low-fi and low-key. Yes. But being to um, attract quite big crowds busking because we used to sort of hand out percussion instruments and things and people could join in. And gradually, it just got bigger and bigger. You know, Chris's girlfriend joined on more vocals and washboard, and then we got a bass player, and then eventually we got a drummer. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of grew. Mm. And we got um, a gig supporting Pogues when they were Pogue Mahone at the Irish Centre in Camden. And we just used to play along round that sort of area with... Um, the Pogues and the men they couldn't hang just for a couple of months that lasted and then um, we did a gig at the Brixton Fridge and Andy McDonald's from Godis came along and just signed us there and then on the spot so that was uh, early 84. Right that was exciting because that's the one thing that also I noticed is that um, during that time obviously there was a lot of political excitement and angst going on and also a lot of bands I've interviewed there was the great sort of unemployed employment period of sort of just signing on because there wasn't much else to do and also squatting as well so were those kind of worlds part of your scene because there was the unemployment but there was also the the great enterprise allowance scheme which gave people a year to be a self-employed yeah. artist of some description yeah no i was i was working at the virgin megastore um as the blues um soul uh, lp buyer um Danny had been the drummer in the punk band The Exploited. Um, Chris had been in a, a folk band called Barely Works, the banjo player. He was probably the, the best musician out of the lot of us. Um, and uh, Kevin had been in a punk band in sort of West London area. Uh, Lloyd had been in lots of sort of rockabilly um, rhythm and blues bands around, our bass player Lloyd. Um, Meryl was a hairdresser. 
Uh, Marnie was a dressmaker, so none of us were, you know, from um, apart from Chris, really, were in bands before. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I was living in a bedsit, you know, in action, probably paying about four pounds a week for my bedsit, working at the mega store. And and then as we got more and more popular, and we got an agent, and we were doing lots of gigs around the country. And, you know, one night we'd be in Manchester, the next in Brighton, the next night in Durham. And, you know, I'd get a couple of weeks off work. And then eventually work said to me, you've got to choose between the band or the, the, the you know, the job. So I left the job and that would have been sort of summer 84. Right. Because yeah. yeah. I've been one of those people who loved my rock documentaries. So, you know, I just watched one on the Beatles, the Stones and also Twisted Sister, which was all which was the one thing that I did notice as they talk about their kind of life is that they all spent a lot of time playing live in various kind of like small gigs, tiny gigs, kind of to little audience. But they did play. One thing I'd noticed is that they did spend a lot of time playing live and learning how to develop a sort of, you know, I suppose, a persona and stage presence. So did those busking Oh, no, no, no. We we were the complete opposite of that. Were you? The complete opposite, yeah. There was no no one sort of... We never sat down. We never rehearsed. Um, we never said, right, this is what we're going to look like. This is going to be our sound. There were no predetermined uh, determined ideas at all. It was purely spontaneous, wild sort of punk ethic, um, ramshackled bunch of, yeah, herberts, basically. <laughs> yes. And did you feel, because at that time, I just remembered sort of, the, the there was a lot of political stuff going on with the, um, the Thatcher government and then there'd been the Falklands. Yeah, so. I mean, we did loads of miners' benefits. We did lots of the GLC um, benefits in Battersea Park and... Um, down at Waterloo, and yeah, we were quite heavily involved in in lots of benefits at that time. But then, were you aware that you may make a career? Because obviously, if you gave your job up, you must have been thinking there could be something in this. No, so... never, never. I, I I lived for the each day at a time. I never looked to the future at all. Um, I'm not. I'm I'm from a very very poor working class family in South London the youngest of 10, no aspiration, no ambition. No one ever said to me, right, if you go and get singing lessons or if you pursue this further, you could make a career out. No, it was just, <laughs> it was nothing like that. It was, I came through the, the punk thing. I'm, I'm actually a lot older than you. I'm 61 this year. And I came through the punk thing and that DIY ethos was what's, basically rooted the boot hill that was what we were because also if you bear in mind what else was going on at that time that was the the blitz club the bat cave the new romantics boy george marilyn um and then along came obviously duran duran and all that kind of thatcher wealth um you know flash cars flash suits electronic music synth pop we were the total, us, the Pogues, the men they couldn't hang, the Skiff Scats, um, Helen and the Horns, the Shillelagh Sisters. We were all complete opposite of that. We were going right back to basics, back to roots, back to, you know, skiffle, scar, basic, three-chord songs. Um, the fashion was literally just straight out of, 
um, Grapes of Wrath. You know, it was it was just dungarees, check shirts, straw hats. Yes. Um, and, did you? And, I was going to say, did you suddenly see Dexys and think, my God? That... Oh yeah, Dexys were a huge influence on me and Meryl. I don't know about the rest of the band, but me and Meryl, I love the Dexys. And in fact, I'm actually the first person on the on dancing at one of their theatre gigs where everyone sat down and they come on stage and it was filmed and it's available on a DVD. And I, I didn't, I, I knew I went to the gig, but recently in the last sort of few years I watched the DVD and I looked and suddenly remembered that it was me who <laughs> ran out of my seat down the aisle to the front and started dancing and then everyone followed and that is you know the De- Dexys are, are still one of my all-time favorite bands I include a Dexys track in every show I do on my radio station excellent because I, <laughs> I, I think you know for all his faults and everything Kevin Rowland is a genius Yes, um, and that that you know, and he, obviously he changes his image from one album to the next. But that two um, IA album, yes, was very influential for me and Meryl. Yeah, I can't remember it, but I did listen to one of those interviews where they were talking about the album where they all, they're all wearing very smart suits and the fact that oh, it, yeah. is, it, it is kind of a classic, but it just everything on it. And I think it took years to record and there was a lot of awkwardness and lots of sack producers and engineers. Yeah, yeah, but it was yeah. kind of there is kind of genius within it. It's just it just everything got a bit confused <laughs> and it yeah, probably cost a whole, fortune. You know, the whole kind of hillbilly look I loved anyway, because. You know, I loved rockabilly music and rhythm and blues music, even though I was, you know, come through the punk thing. I still loved, um, you know, n- music from New Orleans and and Roots music. And, I mean, through The Clash, I got to hear Joe Ely and Country and Western. And so, you know, my musical tastes are so broad. But I've, I I was a sort of tomboy, so I loved the, just the, the ripped-up denim dungarees and the old check shirts. And I've never been a sort of you know, a fashionista who has to have, you know, the latest uh, expensive clothes or anything like that. And that kind of filtered through. And I don't know why, but it kind of fitted at the time. We seem to, you know, I've met lots of people since who come up to me and say, you know, oh, we loved the booters. We were 16 and we used to, you know, come and, and we dressed like you. We had crisps like you. And, you know, grown women are, are sort of fawning over me saying, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I copied your hairstyle and things like that. And it just makes me laugh so much because it was so not what we were about. But it obviously really resonated with a lot of young people to be anti, especially if you were sort of on the left-leaning politically, to be anti all that swanky glitzy you know electronic music it was it was just really kind of earthy and and um it appealed to a lot of people especially students at that time yes well i suppose the band that i did sort of fall in love with and it was because of their image and also the lyrics and it was the it was the smiths i have to confess you know when i first heard it yeah i saw them i saw them um 1982 i think it was or 80s Maybe a when when did they first start when they I think it was the late, latter half of eighty two and then it was eighty three they probably okay well it, it would have been the end of eighty two I saw them at the old Brixton fridge because I was living in that bedsit in Acton and my friends who lived in the same building um, had a band called the Decorators I don't know if you remember them they put an album out and um, they were supporting and that was the first time I'd seen the Smiths and he had the flowers in the back pocket and. Stuff like that, and and he actually came to um, see the Boot Hill Foot Tappers, Morrissey did, at the Bull and Gate 
in Kent, in Kentish Town, next door to the Turner Country Club. He was there at standing at the back one night. We were on stage, and he was with John Peel and John Waters. So I remember looking out and thinking, "Oh my God, there's Morrissey." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because because that whole scene with the Blitz kids and everybody you know, being beautiful and, and well-connected and, and me being so insecure and, and sort of kind of frightened and, and intimidated of going to those kind of clubs and would never even attempt to. And, well, likewise. You know. <laughs> it was, so I think it was such a relief because it felt also felt because, it, you know, one didn't feel like you were, you know, going to be part, you know, I didn't subscribe to the Face magazine and I wasn't going no, to no. particularly buy the latest Sade album. And, and it, But it did make, when you're young, it make, makes you, it highlights one's even more more failings in life and in a way it's kind of a relief when someone comes along and says no that's absolutely fine and okay, you know yeah, it, it yeah. was it's it's huge really because because yeah. at the time and my god you know this was before social media I mean that would have just been rubbing it completely in my face so, <laughs> um, so, it, was, so, so it was quite good that I, I didn't have to look at the face magazine you know too much because um it did it did sort of say you know you're not you're not sort of one of the beautiful people you are going to sort of be at the Blitz. Well, I, I, you know, it, you're talking to, you know, I'm the same because I'm six foot tall. I've got size nine feet. Um, I'm not petite and delicate and pretty and I've never been sort of girly girly and, and all that Blitz thing, all the girls were all really kind of covered in black lace and loads of makeup and, you know, big hair and big sort of rah-rah skirts and, and it was just not me, you know. I'm a kind of one, the reason I love punk is that I was I was into the Ramones. I could wear ripped jeans, Converse, a T-shirt with some sort of handmade spray painted slogan like "I hate French cooking. It's the cooking of the middle classes," you know. And just <laughs> so so for me, you know, finding identity with with bands and and certain types of music and crowds that you know weren't into. The, the swankiness and the showing off and the, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it made made me feel part of something. You know, yeah, that was the thing about the Boot Hills. I felt I was part of a gang. You know, and it was interesting because because I did an interview with the the men they couldn't hang, and he mentioned a lot about the world of busking. And then it was one of my. Who did you speak to, Swill or Paul? Swill. So there you right. go. Yes, because yeah. they just had a new album out. Yeah, I'm still really good mates with all them. Which is great. And it was kind of quite humbling because he was saying about the new album, saying they're halfway th- through making it. And then I think it was his brother got diagnosed with cancer, so they had to yeah. put it on hold. And then when they yeah. came back to finish it, you know, the album, the sound and the vibe had changed considerably. And it's like, yeah, I'm not surprised. That is yeah. going to change you. But the other, one of my favourite gigs I ever went to was to see Elvis Costello. And the support band were the, the Pogues. And that was in the days when... Spider still that, had his um, tray. No, this was at the UEA, and um, and there was like you know with support bands, and especially in the old days, I don't know what it's like now, but you know literally like five people would be you know watching, and everyone, yeah. everybody else would be elsewhere. But I was quite mesmerised by the Pogues, so yeah. I sort of got into that, and and I was one of those people who was obsessed with John Peel and recording the John Peel show. So obviously, yeah, yeah, he me was, too. He was the great gatekeeper of our yeah. kind of lives I've, really. I've still got cassette tapes whether they all play or not because I haven't actually got a cassette player anymore but I've still got cassette tapes taped off the radio from one of those little tiny cassette players you know yes. <laughs> with a microphone held to the radio with Susie and the Banshees sessions and Cure sessions and things like that so 
So, so going back to the the recording process, which was your your on Godis. So, was that when you got the big push? Because I can remember just when you mentioned that. I remember Cooking Vinyl Records put out Michelle Shock's first ever album. Yeah, and that was yeah. that. I think that was recorded around the campfire, wasn't it? That someone yeah. just had a microphone. Yeah, campfire sessions. Yeah, and he yeah. just said, "Wow!" And I might be wrong but I believe that that's when cooking vinyl records started but that might be just me telling lies mm, probably or, you have to talk to Pete Lawrence I should that. talk to Pete and say was that true <laughs> or is that have have I just dreamt yeah. that but obviously that must have been that must have felt like a really exciting thing to be suddenly on oh, it was record label. and and you know we were on the same label as Billy Bragg we did loads of gigs with Billy and Attila the stockbroker and you know a lot of the sort of left wing of the Redskins we did a whole tour with the Redskins and um, and signing to Godis, I mean, he didn't give us any money, you know, um, but he paid for us to record um, two songs and they just put them out as a single. But Andy had a really good relationship with the pluggers and the radio stations and that sort of thing and good PR. And um, he obviously was in with all the music journalists because of Billy Bragg. And so, yeah, we, we ended up on the front page of Sounds in June 1984. Blimey. And did yeah. you suddenly think, oh, my God, this, this well, you know, how did, how did you cope with the success of those early? <laughs> early? I thought it was funny. <laughs> you know, it just, I was still, I mean, when Get Your Feet Out of My Shoes was being released, Andy had lined up all this promo stuff for us to do. And me and Meryl just went off to Greece on holiday. this is before mobile phones you know and and andy's pulling his hair out in chiswick saying to the others well where are they i've got all this stuff oh they've gone on holiday (laughs) me and meryl just sunning ourselves on a on a nudist beach in greece (laughs) well well the record company guys are kind of you know thinking what on earth have we done signing this lot luckily we've only signed them for one single um so yeah and come the come the second single i mean it did really well get your feet out as you know it cost him nothing to record and um and he wanted to do a follow up so we were going to sign a second single deal um and he wanted me to sing the second single because i sang the first one and then we we were a six piece band a, i'm sorry an eight piece band and it was meant to be three girl vocal vocalists and then three other male vocalists and everyone said no wendy's wendy's not singing the next record um somebody it's somebody else's turn and andy mcdonald at godis just said well if wendy's not singing the next record then i won't sign you so that caused a bit of friction as you can imagine yes um so and then this a and r man at phonogram came to one of our gigs and said that, oh, yeah, I'll sign you. And we went along to meet him and some other people at Phonogram, and uh, we walked in his office, and he'd never seen us live until that that particular gig, so he didn't really know what we were about. And he put on the um, latest Julie, Julian Lennon sort of white reggae pop hit on his stereo and said, this is how I imagine the boot hill foot tappers to sound. So if I sign you, this is where we're going to go with it. Wow. And me and Slim and Meryl kind of looked at each other like, you are joking, mate. You know, this is nothing. 
this is so far removed from our indie punk roots. And um, and the other guys, Kevin and Chris and Danny, sort of said, well, how much money are you going to give us? We need a new guitar, I need a new drum kit, how much money are you going to get? And so it did come down to selling out to the devil, really. And I think we were sold, we were signed, I should say, as a um, as a tax loss. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that still happens. I don't think record right. have got money to do it anymore. But in those days, you know, they had so much money swilling around, they had to write some of it off. Yes. And but I think was... we were just a tax loss. Yeah, because I, I can vaguely remember hearing the Julian Lennon single, and it was just appalling. It was, <laughs> it was, really, it was really, it was so bland. But then you know, really was... bland. And and the worst thing was is that we had to then go in the studio. I mean, you know, we we had some good times because we were going into Dave Stewart's studio and Townhouse, and um, and we were working with Langer and with Stanley. You know, Clive Langer and thingy. Yes. Oh, um, yes, they did. You know, yeah. Costello stuff, and and you know, so we were we were getting really great experience, um, but it just didn't feel right. I mean, the live gigs were still as shambolic and as you know riotous as ever, but when we were actually in the studio, it all got too polished. And and one particular singer, I mean, we had the follow up jealousy. I think we had Bobby Valentino on um, on fiddle. Oh, wow, and from the that, Fabulous Poodles. Uh, was he in the Fabulous Poodles? Mm. He, he played with the Bluebells on Young at Heart, you know. That, yes. Da, 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 da. No, he was, he was he, I think he was, his moment was, well, it, they were one of those cult bands that once got mentioned in the film Peter's Friends as the Fabulous Poodles. I remember them. and Because oh. I knew a person um, who well, wrote... Wasn't Tony, Tony Demur, wasn't he? Yes, he Fabulous was, Poodles? yes, because I interviewed him recently um, because they've got a new compilation. I mean, Cherry Red have put out a, a record of all their kind of stuff. I do believe. Cherry Red reissued the Boot Hills album a few years ago as well on CD. Yes, and and yeah. so I interviewed Tony, and then I knew this guy who wrote some songs for the Fabulous Poodles, and he was like, "If only they'd played one of our songs in the film, you know, Peter's Friends, we would have all suddenly made some money." But they just mentioned it as because because oh. they they <laughs> yeah. they were one of those college, you know, like posh college bands who would play yeah, at sort of those balls yeah. at, at Cambridge and Oxford. So obviously Kenneth oh, Branagh right. and all that bunch had seen this yeah. band, referenced it in this film, but didn't put it on the soundtrack. And it was like, oh, oh my God, funny. if only you did it. So yes, yeah, you had the famous Bobby Valentino. Yeah, so he played fiddle. And then um, the follow-up, I think, was too much time. And, um, and the record company actually took Slim's accordion Live, you know, his real accordion sounds, they took it off in the mix and put on a synthetic electronic accordion sound. God, that must have been hard. Oh, my God. Well, that, that for me, was kind of almost the end of yes. the end of it. And then, then they said they wanted to record an album with us and we got Dick Cussell to produce it, who was the trombone, a trumpet player in the specials. And um, and Rico was the trombone player, so we had Dick Cussell and Rico involved in it, and um, John Martin, the you know John Martin, um, may you never, oh the, right, the guitarist. He came up. We were basically the record company knew that if we were recording in London, 
they'd have to spend a lot of money because it would take a long time because we'd be out getting drunk and mates would be coming into the studio getting drunk. So they sent us to the furthest north studio they could find in Inverness, 10 miles outside of Inverness on a, on a farm. So the only way to get there was in a four-wheel drive Jeep. And, um, and we were stuck there. God, it wasn't so Drumla Drocket, was it? Sorry? It wasn't, because I've been to a place near there called Drumla Drocket, which was on, is it Loch Ness? In, is uh, it Inverness in Scotland, isn't it? It's Inverness in Scotland. I don't know if it's near Loch Ness. I wouldn't know. I'd have to have a look at the back of the album cover, which I haven't got in front of me at the moment. But, but we found a local pub and the Bluebells were in there playing pool. So we, we did find some people to get drunk with. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was one of those sort of, uh, for me, it was a bit like pulling teeth recording that album. So had you got uh, the material when you went up there, or were you trying to re- um, write the material at the same yeah, time? Yeah, it was pretty much our busking set, you know. Because normally, that, that, things, normally that means that people sort of who know what they're doing. Sorry? I said, sorry. I said normally when people have been playing stuff live, it's normally sort of like, I don't know, the first Black Sabbath album. They just went in, went, OK, we'll just do the whole album in one take. There you go, because we've been playing it live for well, years. Well, I would have preferred to have done that. That would have <laughs> suited me because you'd have got an album that had the energy and the sort of rawness of our live set. But as it turned out, the album came out overproduced and polished and didn't sound like us. In yes. a lot of ways. Which was quite strange, because at the time, I remember going off and buying that first Pogues, or the first two Pogues albums, and that was quite enjoyably raw, and John Peel was playing all yes. those kind of and folky exactly things. exactly what I would have wanted. Yes. I would have wanted our, our sound to be like that. God, that's so but strange. It, it, got, it got overproduced, um, took too long, you know... Um, it, yeah, it wasn't an enjoyable experience, I have to say. Yeah, because one, one thing I did notice, that bands who happened were doing their sort of having their zeitgeist moment in the 80s had a really good sound, like, you know, the indie stuff, because people just went, that's fine. It was the artists who had been so-called big before that who went into the 80s, like your David Bowie's and Robert Plant and, you know, lots of those albums that they, you know, Rod Stewart... They'd done some great stuff in the past. They got into the 80s. They didn't really know. They went for that kind of Trevor Horn sound. It sounds mm. terrible. And mm. I always remember people like Rod Stewart saying, you know, actually, can we just skip the 80s? And it wasn't about his personal life and how many people he got married. It was like, actually, yeah, <laughs> the albums are just dreadful. And David Bowie's yeah. a- a- 80s albums got reproduced yeah. last year. And it's like, can we just take out the 80s production and just put in <laughs> the organic kind of, take out that awful drum sound, put in yeah, the organic yeah, sound. And just, sound, yeah. they're great songs, but yeah, the production ruined. was yeah. disastrous. And, you know, God, it must have yeah. been bad because he started Tin Machine. And you thought, yeah, th- things had got <laughs> really... The only time I saw Bowie, actually, was the Tin Machine. I think I walked out after about four nights. Yes, well, that was the 80s production for it. It just leads yeah. on to terrible decisions. So, so it's quite interesting and bizarre that because that... Because the one thing I'd noticed doing this show was that John Peel was this great gatekeeper, but also the music press were like the NME Sounds and Melody Maker. Oh, they had so much power. They had 100,000 copies a week. Yeah. And there was three they of them. They were everyone's Bible, weren't they? I yeah. mean, you couldn't wait for it to come out on a Thursday morning. Absolutely. And and so it was strange that I can see why those established stars struggled in the 80s, trying to find something and, and not being quite with it. But yeah. for the alternative, you know, the people who were developing at that 
that time, it was like kind of easy from Billy Bragg to the Pogues, the men, men they can hang, because it was like, yeah. well, this is your period and you can definitely not have exactly, Trevor, yeah. Trevor Horn. Yeah. So it was very strange. I mean, strange. David Quantic in the NME did the first review of the Boot Hill Foot Tappers from that first gig at the Dublin Castle when it was just Chris, Kevin, Merrill and myself, the one where we met Slim. And he did a review of that, and he was meant to be reviewing Roddy Radiation and the Tear Jerkers. And the following Thursday, there was a massive picture of me and Merrill in the live um, reviews with a yee-haw written underneath, and then the most fantastic review of the Boot Hill Foot Tappers. And there's little mention of the Tear Jerkers at the end. <laughs> and that was it really from that day onwards that was when Andy McDonald from Godis was interested that's when Adrian Thrills started writing about us in his Thrills column Um, the the, you know uh, Sean Hagen uh, uh, Stuart Bailey at Record Mirror um, uh, who was it somebody at Sounds whose name's gone I can't remember you know they all used to come and see the Bootles so you know it was just one of those sort of bands that they loved because we were you know we weren't smooth we weren't um yes. processed and produ- overproduced and live it was a riot yes well I, I remember sort of you know watching the bundu boys after john peel played them a few times and mm. thinking my god they oh, we supported them at um, womad and i think it was on a beach in cornwall and you must have thought fantastic we're, yeah. we're kindred spirits <laughs> i was just like wow this is this is it. I know the music it's from Zimbabwe. Yeah. So then, because because most bands have a five year narrative of getting together, we didn't have that. We no, had the you didn't have, did you? Because because normally it's like you have two years rehearse and then John Peel play the single. You have the session. Yeah, you have no, the first no, no. album. Ours was instant, pretty much instant. It was six months, I would say, from the first ever busking gig to the front page of Sounds. Yes. So you sped that one up, but then you only as a band, it's sort of in the mid-80s when when we were still... We did our last gig in November 85. 85? Because normally yeah. a lot of that scene, because I realised with the Smiths, from they lasted from 83 to 87 when their first album, then they finished. And and with the, with the music scene, I have sort of noticed that there was definitely a bit of a vibe there. And then about 88 onwards, there was that dance scene, and then you got the grunge scene, and then you got, you know, a bit of the shoegaze, and then Britpop. So each kind of those phases did knock a lot of bands out who just kind of had been together for five years and were really starting to struggle dynamically amongst themselves. And then there was like, oh, by the way, dance music is going to be the new thing. So mm. unless you sound like mm. the Happy Monday Stone Roses, yeah. Final Scream, you might as well forget it now. And most yeah. people did. It's like, actually, I think we should forget it now because because uh, we were about to kill each other. But you, you sort of at the height of that great 80s period, 85, kind of yeah. did your Jim Morrison, this is the end. So what, what sort of... <laughs> well, what... I did. I, I walked out. <laughs> And they didn't play again after that. Yes. For another seven years when we did a reunion at the um, Mean Fiddler in Halston. Oh. And did you? And was the writing on the wall that things were going to come to an end that, that particular winter? Yes, for me it was, yeah. Yeah, I think the last gig we all did together was at... Um, it was either Yulu or it was one of the London big uh, colleges... Um, with the Redskins and Billy Bragg, I think, and possibly Attila, the stockbroker. And, yeah, things had got kind of difficult amongst... I mean, there were eight of us. There was a dog, there was a baby, 
and a tour manager and we'd cram into a minivan and do those sort of I mean I looked at the logistics of the last tour we did that autumn and it literally was you know Brighton Norwich Manchester uh Cardiff it was like that so we weren't it wasn't organized so that we could just kind of you know do a few a hundred miles between gigs or something it was up down over across uh, and that lasted for about six weeks and we were ragged you know, bearing in mind we were caning it, um, all in crammed in the van together, very different personalities. Um, you know, a couple of us were mates, but the rest of us, we were just sort of busking mates. We didn't, you know, we weren't together because we loved each other, put it that way. <laughs> yes. And a couple of things happened, and I just thought, I can't take this anymore. You know, I'm not being kind of dramatic but i just have had enough you know it happens doesn't it yeah it is tricky i know i remember seeing a documentary about sort of bands and i remember it was stuart copeland from the police who said that you know him and sting just didn't get on everyone else was having a good time so they eventually had to have band therapy and they did speak about you know how much you know they kind of had problems with each other and, and sort of managed to sort it out but you know i don't think many bands have band therapy they just walk away don't they in the end yeah yeah i mean you know there were that many of us um and you know i i wasn't happy with with the album and the way that that happened and the fact that we'd signed a phonogram that kind of it took all the fun out of it for me it really did and i was only really in it for the fun so if the fun's gone and we're not earning loads of money we weren't not like we were top 10 or anything you know yes um, get your feet out, got to number 63, and that was it. Not, and not being a songwriter, none of us earned any money from that apart from Chris the banjo player. So, so know, when... it was just, I, needed to, I needed to find something else I could do. Yes, well, that's... The... So when you had your reunion, was that quite an interesting process? It was great, actually, because we spent uh, a day in the rehearsal studios the day before, so we did actually rehearse for it. Um, I was sober, so um, I enjoyed it immensely because I could remember all the lyrics. It was a sold-out show at the Mean Fiddler, loads of old faces that I hadn't seen, you know, because by that time I'd left London. I was married, living in in, uh, Hampshire in a little village. Um, So it was just lovely to be back on stage in the Mean Fiddler to a packed audience who were just going mental. You know, it was lovely. And, um, uh, but Chris and Marnie were living in France by then and they'd kind of made it quite clear they didn't want it to carry on. And, um, you know, it was just a one off. So, yes. Um, but was it, was, it, it was great, yeah. Was there ever any issues on, because having mentioned that, you know, because obviously who owns the name or who owns the kind of band is always one of those tricky ones, as as uh, Roger Waters from the Pink Floyd had sort of found out when he left and the others went, well, we're just going to continue. So on, was, there, yeah. was there ever sort of a moment where you thought, well, we'll just... Con-. Did you ever sort of feel like you would like it to, to continue, but with different oh, people? Oh, no, no, I, I didn't, because I'd moved on completely by then. You know, I'd been DJing. I started DJing um, at the end of... 85 beginning of 86 at the town and country club um and doing my friday night wendy may's locomotion and i did that and i'm still doing that that's what i do now i still dj um 
so that kind of replaced being in a band. I mean, obviously, it was much more solitary and lonely yes. <laughs> than, than being with a gang. But um, I was able to carry on, you know, my love of of having a good time and dancing and playing my favourite records and seeing, you know, Elvis Costello, the Pogues, the Men, um, Billy Bragg, um, Madness Boys, um, you know, and and all the NME crowd and all that, like, all coming to my club. So in a way, I kind of create, I curated somewhere for all that lot that I'd hung out with when I was in the band to come after going to see bands, they could come out and spend the next four hours in my company. Yes. That you know, so perfect. that is kind of where I went with it. Yeah. Uh, and was, because Fast Eddie did mention this as well, did, um, did drinking and drugs play a part in the sort of the unfortunate dynamics of some of the moments with the band? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm not a drug person at all, um, but I like my drink. And uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of where some things clashed. Yes, yeah. God, so different so... kind of different vibes, different psyches of people. You know, I, I do... wasn't like a big heavy drinker on whiskey or anything like that. I was just a lager lout, really. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember when when Lemmy was talking about being in um, Hawkwind. You know, there's a problem with him being on speed and everyone else being on sort of acid. And it exactly. Didn't, it didn't... That's what I'm saying. If you're all on dope, you're all on the same level, you're all on the same wavelength. But when you've got some people speeding and some people on dope, you know, or some people just drinking themselves into oblivion and, and others kind of just enjoying the odd pint, it, it, it you know, it is difficult. Yes, it's very tricky. And what, I mean, having looked back on those years, well, I mean, what would you say to you know, an 18-year-old or 18-year-old self sort of starting out in music? Because obviously, you know, there were things you probably uh, went... Well, now? I, yeah, now, well, I suppose... Completely well, different now. I would I would say don't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, you know, if you if you want to write songs, write songs, go to your little local pub, open mic, perform, if that's what you like doing, and just put it out on YouTube. You know? Yes. Well, I realise that from speaking to, to quite, a lot, quite a lot of people, because actually the other thing that trips people up is the kind of the admin and the publishing and the ownership of music. So obviously that's probably something that never quite got sorted with the... With the um... No, it was never discussed. It was never, you know, I did write a few lyrics and sort of offered them up and they got poo-pooed straight away, um, which didn't bother me because, you know, Chris is a great songwriter. Um, I mean, he wrote, you know, Get Your Feet Out of My Shoes, and everyone thought I'd written it because I was called the thinking woman's answer to Tammy Wynette. Um, you know, so instead of Stand By Your Man, it was Get Your Feet Out of My Shoes. And I never wrote it. That's the irony, is that Chris wrote it from a woman's perspective. Um, yes. And, uh, so yeah, so, you know, the copywriting and all that. I mean, I never got any royalties, ever. Never got... Any, I mean, I I lived on ten pound a day when we were touring, our per diems of ten pound a day, which the others would, some of them would, you know, just completely trash on drugs, and I would save mine and go and buy myself a buckskin fringe jacket in a charity shop in in Leeds or somewhere when we were on tour, you know. Yes. Um, 
So once all that stopped, I had to find a way of, um, of you know, earning a living. Uh, God, it's a tricky one. But yes. And are you sort of in, in touch with any of the members now? I just wondered if, you know, it's... I, kind of... I spent the afternoon with Meryl today. Meryl is my bestest, oldest friend. She's one of the, the three girl singers. There's me, Marnie and Meryl. And I've known Meryl since she was 17 and I was sort of 21. So we've been friends through it all. And she's now moved sort of a mile away from where I live in Sussex. So we see each other a lot and we're still really, really good friends. I see Slim um, quite a lot, you know, probably about six, ten times a year we hang out. Kevin sadly died, our guitarist, he died about, um, oh, it might even be ten years ago now. Wow. Um, uh, who else? Chris and Marnie are still in France on a sort of small holding thing, so don't see them. We did do a reunion gig, um, we did two in fact, 2011, we did our very last reunion gig and it was um at um oh what was it called the festival i've got a poster of it upstairs uh it was jim driver's festival um oh. near peterborough um with nick lowe um oh god who else on the bill blockheads anyway we played on the back of a truck we were on the second stage with the men they couldn't hang and the blubbery hellbellies. Excellent. God. So that was um that was like a reunion. That uh, was it. 2011. And I think the couple of weeks before that, we'd done the 100 Club part of the Save the, Save the 100 Club festival when it was threatened with closure. And we did a sold-out gig at the 100 Club with the blubbery hellbellies supporting us, which was Slim, Slim and Arthur, my brothers from the Lurkers. It was their... They were one of the other bands that we used to play with all the time. Yeah, and actually, because one of the bands that I've always been really curious and interested about has been the Redskins that you've mentioned quite a lot. Yeah, we went on tour with them, yeah. Because yeah. not only did they just do one album, which was kind of brilliant, and then just disappeared, and no one has ever heard anything from them since. And it's like, Well, I'm friends with the drummer. I mean, I saw him uh, about six weeks ago. Oh, right. Yeah, Paul Hookham, the drummer. Oh, he wow. wasn't the original drummer, but he was certainly on, um, you know, no. all the last things that they did. Oh, um, God. Uh, but Chris Moore, Exmoor, no one knows where. He, he went off to France. There was talk of some woman. He went off to live in Paris, we think, um, and no one has ever heard from him since. None of the NME crowd that I'm still still in touch with. I mean, David Quantic lives here. Um, um, Gavin Martin lives here. Loads of the old enemy crowd live where I live, and no one has heard anything about him. No one, he's likely disappeared off the face of the earth. Which is amazing in, in this time, and, it, and and just never resurfaced or ever no. appeared. And so I, th- no. you know, that is kind of because the Redskins were one of those bands that, you know, I just, I lo- you know, adored that album. It was just so yeah. incredible. Yeah, well, I played Keep On Keeping On on my show on Thursday. And it's yeah. just, and it's awesome. And you know, yet there is well, obviously you you're in touch with one of the members, but it's like God, what happened to them? And and you know, I've never sort of known anybody to disappear quite so yeah drastically. Well, apart know. from what's his name from Manic Street Preachers? Yes. Oh yeah. So yeah, off, I, off the bridge. He off went the way. Oh, was bound on the bridge, wasn't it? 
but I don't know. I don't. I didn't get the impression that he disappeared in that way. I just got the impression that he just went. I don't know because there was some rumor that he he took the money and ran with it, but I don't know if that was Who, just Chris. Like, yes. Right. But I don't know. I mean, because yeah, I, I read, read an interview which was very old. Where I don't think it, there would have been that that much money. No, but the other members had a tax bill that they they were left with. Oh right, yeah, and it yeah, was one yeah. of those kind of numbers that that was like right. great. You know, he's disappeared, and now yeah. we've got this huge tax bill because, and he, you know, yeah. he's got. Well, that. Paul Paul went on to play drums with the Wooden Tops after the Redskins. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, but those gigs must have been absolutely electric because they were wild. I mean, it was meant to be a, a. It was quite funny, really. I've got to tell this little story because it is quite funny, you know. Because there's three of them, and obviously left wing Marxists. Um, there were eight of us, okay, and it was meant to be a dual headline tour. So one night they were headlining, the next night we were headlining. So that's how it was meant to be. And after about three gigs it just became them headlining. And we'd get to these universities and they'd have a massive room as their dressing room with a big table full of food and drink for their buffet, you know, for their rider. And we'd find our dressing room and it would be like a cupboard and there'd be a sort of, you know, tin of crackers and a little block of cheese or something for eight of us. And so when they were on stage, me and Meryl used to go in and just raid their dressing room and take loads of food and put it into our cupboard. Excellent. I mean, they knew we were doing it, but it was just this really funny kind of scenario of like, you know, these three Marxists are being treated like superstars and we're, we're just like, you know, living on a crumb. Um, yes, on a, <laughs> a can of cider and, um, yes, yeah, a packet crumbs of crisps. off their table, yeah. Oh, what a <laughs> Anyway, look, this has been great. So thank you. I've got quite a bit there now. So thank you for giving me the time for this. Because you're Because okay. on the record... Sorry about my cough, by oh, the way. Oh, no, that's absolutely fine. So basically the recordings are just going to be what I can find on YouTube, aren't they? And things like that. Um, or are they on... Look, there, there is a, an album that, that you know, the... Um, the one that Cherry Red put out is on oh. CD and it's got extra live tracks and the John Peel sessions. Right. You know, the John, to me, the John Peel sessions, we did like two or three and they're the best recordings for the bootle. So if you can find any of those on, on YouTube, yes. I think well, Slim's put quite a lot of stuff up. Yeah, actually, John, the John Peel sessions are always the favourite, aren't they? So yeah, that is fantastic. But yeah, what's his name from Motley Hoople did the production on them? You know, oh, the one Dale that died Griffith. a couple of years ago. Um, did, was it Dale? Dale, that's it. Yeah, Dale Griffith. Griffith, that's it. Griffith. Yeah, yeah I know. Yes, yeah, I that always made remember, a Dale Studios. Yeah. Made, yes, those those kind of magic words that John Peel used mm. to often say, produced by Dale Griffith. <laughs> that made of our and you went oh they must be good I know and then you had to try and sort of record them on a C you know your TDK C90 cassette yeah, classic yeah. but that was great but look this has been great so thank you ever so much and I'll tell you when That's I put okay. this out well, and well send me a link to your show or something you know when it goes out so I will I have a share listen. it on social media the social media world I know hashtag us up <laughs> that'll be great but look this has been great so thank you ever so much and um, okay and I'll keep in touch but thanks yeah, again thank you very much take care nice to speak to you bye bye bye, bye.